A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and this occasion of worship where we've gathered together to sing your praise and to now sit with your scriptures that we may hear your voice. And so we pray that you would speak to us uh, and we pray that you would stir us. And we're mindful as we come into this room and as we begin to consider this topic of justice, uh, that we are coming from a lot of different experiences uh, and that that conversation uh, carries a lot of freight of different kinds with many of us. 
And so we thank you that you are a God who is not far from each of us and that you attend to each of us and speak to us right where we are. And I pray that that is just what you would do this morning. Would you comfort us? Would you give us hope? Would you challenge us? And would you stir us by your spirit to be human in your world in a different way? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we continue our series on questions that linger, we are considering this question. Is there any hope for justice in the world? And I don't know about you, but for me, wading out into a conversation about the possibility of justice kind of feels like wading into quicksand. Uh, because it only takes a few moments of being in that conversation before I feel like I start to sink. Or, um, or maybe the whole conversation starts to sink. And it can sink in a number of different directions. Uh, sometimes I feel myself sinking into cynicism. You know, is there any hope for justice? Of course not. Uh, just look at the evidence. People taking advantage of people for their own gain is the oldest play in the playbook. And the story of human history reads like it is just mostly that writ large across the time and space that humans have occupied. And the news today, whatever that news is going to be, will almost certainly just be that same story all over again. So it can sink into cynicism. But sometimes I feel myself sinking into like a, a protective cocoon of naive optimism, right? Like, is there any hope for justice? Of course, there must be. What would that mean for us if there weren't? I mean, the hope of justice is one of the earliest things we give voice to as little kids uh, through our tears of anger and our shouts of it's not fair when some bigger kid takes our toy or maybe some luckier kid who was in the right time, right place at the right time and had the opportunity to grab it, right? Or the kid who gets two cookies when I only got one. We know that visceral uh, frustration and anger over injustice that comes from a place that's deeper than just simply selfish desire, but this sense that there's really something amiss with the way things are. So in my, as, I, as I sink into my optimism, you know, I, 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 I go into this place where I'm like, you just can't tell me that that human sense of justice comes from nowhere and amounts to nothing, Right? Other times I feel myself or even the whole conversation sink into like this fog of incomprehension. Um, because while we use the term justice pretty freely and liberally, and we can all generally affirm that's a good thing to the extent we can affirm that it is a thing, what we mean by justice uh, can be really, really different. So like which justice are we even talking about when we're asking the question of is there any hope for it? Uh, Michael Sandel is a Harvard law professor who identifies three main meanings of justice that are operative in our public discourse today. And the first one, he says, is the, the maximum welfare view. It's the one that says that the just society is the one that promotes the greatest good and the least harm for the greatest number of people. And the second one he identifies is the respecting freedom view. That the just society is the one that fosters the, great, the greatest amount of respect for the rights of individuals to live how they want to live and to do what they want to do. And the third one he identifies is the promoting virtue 
view, and that is the one that says the just society is the one that will promote human actions that conform to moral virtue so that the greatest number of people will live and act as we ought to live and act. And while there obviously can be all sorts of overlap among these, uh, Sandel argues that each one emerges as primary over against the others within various subcultures and political movements in our Western society today. But of course, each one of those definitions assumes a lot, right? I mean, what counts as doing good or harm? Why is individual liberty more important than the common good? What is moral virtue and who decides? And in my experience, perhaps yours as well, many of the loudest participants in the conversation uh, about justice aren't nearly as self-aware of the assumptions that we're making as they are passionate about the correctness of their own viewpoint. And I'm sure I am often guilty of this as well, but the result is usually a conversation that generates more heat than light as we sink into this mutual incomprehension and combativeness. And, and the last direction of the sinking that I, I have to acknowledge is just this. I can sometimes feel myself sinking into disengagement. Um, the conversation is overwhelming. And so sometimes I just find myself wanting to check out because I can. Because let's face it, just to call a spade a spade I am a privileged individual, right? I mean, if you just sort of look at my life, my being, I am a white, straight, educated, cisgendered, married male living in a time and place that rewards me from being all of those things. And so whatever the systems in my world are that are unjustly, uh, you know, imbalanced, whatever those things are, however we understand those things, all of them advantage me in ways that I can see, and I'm sure in many ways that I cannot see. And so I come into this conversation as a person of relative privilege, and I feel that I have the liberty to opt into or out of this conversation that many among us do not feel they have the liberty to opt into or out of because I join a conversation that many are thrown into from day one of their lives. So I can sink into a disengagement because I am privileged in the way to where I feel like that's actually an option for me. And that dynamic in itself is unjust, right? It makes the conversation all the more difficult and overwhelming. It makes this microphone all the more awkward uh, as I think about my role in this room. Honestly, like why am I the one talking about this? I have more to learn than I have to say, I know. But if there's any hope for justice in the world, it stands to reason that we will only discover it together if we all stay in the conversation, recognizing and embracing the fact that we are all in this together. Dr. King famously writes in his letter from a Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And what's so amazing to me about his life in particular is just 
how much his own hope for justice and pursuit of justice actually brought about, like in the real world, fruit of justice, right? I mean, he has his own day for a reason. His life made a significant difference in the world. And what's also amazing to me, what's fascinating, what's inspiring, and hopefully will be to all of us, is just how much both his hope for justice and his way of seeking it in the world were rooted in and shaped by his commitment to be Jesus's apprentice in his pursuit of justice. When President Obama was in the Oval Office, he had a rug with King's words on it that said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It's a beautiful statement of hope. It's actually King quoting Theodore Parker. Um, and if you listen to that, to that, where that comes from, that speech, he's citing Theodore Parker, but he's doing so in the context of talking about the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not that some abstract notion of the universe arcs toward justice. It's because of what God has done in Jesus that God is arcing history toward justice. And that was the hope of justice that drove his life, the one that we see embodied, accomplished, and offered in Jesus. And that is the one that, has, has in, that inspired King and ought to inspire us, and it's the one that has made hope for justice just a little bit more plausible today than it was before King graced us with his presence in this country. So what happens when we bring Jesus into the conversation the way he did? What happens when we let God's vision of justice and God's way of pursuing justice bear upon our own? Well, a few things, a few things I think, and, I, and our scripture passages today help us appreciate them. And the first is just this. I think when we bring Jesus into the conversation and we begin to think about justice in and with him, Jesus affirms our longings for justice. And he helps us understand God's vision for justice. He affirms our longing. It's not simply a naive wishing. Rather, it is something written on our hearts and imprinted on our humanity. It's something we ought to long for and want. We're not crazy or childish for doing so. And it's also not something where we're just condemned to be in this sort of endless, swampy, foggy mess of competing visions for justice where there's just no possible way that we might move forward together in one conversation, but rather God actually has a vision for justice to which he calls us. It's distinct from, but resonant with, all the different views that percolate in our own cultural moment. And so here, as we read Luke 4, this, this uh, reading from Luke's gospel, we see Jesus picking up the Old Testament story about God's promised justice. He's, he's reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading this mixed text from Isaiah chapter 61 and 58. Uh, and, and he's talking about what it is that he himself has come to do, and what he says is that he himself has come to bring about God's vision for justice on the earth. We also just read from Isaiah 65, another place from that prophet's letter where there's this beautiful vision cast of God's dream, his vision for his future world. And it's this beautiful vision where there's no weeping, there's no tragic loss, 
There's no oppression of some by others who are more powerful. There's no building a home that someone else is going to inhabit, or there's no planting a vineyard from which someone else is going to eat. There will be joy and satisfaction in fruitful work. And we even get this poetic image of the natural world exhibiting a kind of justice that seems ridiculous uh, in the natural world today. We see predator and prey lying down with one another. It's like that doesn't work in the food chain, right? Uh, As we see it operating in the laws of nature. It's a beautiful vision. It's a desirable vision. And it's an impossible vision according to the way things are. It's not something we experience here and now. It's a vision of new creation, of a a new world brought forth, a world for which we are made, a world for which we long, but a world that eludes us. And Jesus affirms our longing for that world. And he helps us attune our vision for justice so that it might map on to God's own vision. He calls us to get swept up in the movement of his kingdom. But secondly, what Jesus does is he gives us a robust hope for justice in this world that is neither naive nor cynical. He gives us a robust hope for justice in this world that is neither naive nor cynical. As Jesus, he picks up this Old Testament story of God's justice, a story that begins with God's creation of people in making them in his image and affirming the dignity of all humanity, and a story that unfolds through tragedy, through rebellion, through human-on-human violence and injustice and oppression and all kinds of fractured relationship. It's a story that moves forward, and the prophets call God's people back to a different way of being human in the world. And here Jesus picks up those prophets, and he says, the day of its fulfillment has come in me. The whole story is about me. It finds its fulfillment in me. And he says the justice that God envisions and has proclaimed for the poor and for the blind and for the captive that that justice has come in Jesus. Who are the poor? Some want to say, you know, they're spiritually poor, right? Others like to sort of see it more as economically poor. And while there's an aspect of each of those that absolutely is true, I think uh, if you read Luke in in Luke's context, and just the society into which Jesus is speaking, the poor, we need to understand the poor in a broader sense than that. Poverty, uh, we need to understand it more holistically because poverty was more a function of status than anything else, which included economic factors, but it also included racial factors, you know, what family you were born into, kind of what your nationality, ethnicity, all this stuff. There are all these different factors that, that... in a a complex way, would have determined the status of a person. And the poor were those who, for any of those reasons, would have been marginalized, would have been at the edges of society and at the edges of God's people and viewed by those at the center as being at the edges of God's promise or beyond it. And Jesus said, God's justice has come for them in me. And it's come for the blind. Who are the blind? Well, Physical blindness is obviously something we see Jesus addressing, but it's always a metaphor also for something deeper, isn't it? Every time Jesus 
heals the blind and they receive sight. It's a metaphor for a deeper salvation that attests to the holistic nature in which God is rescuing humanity. He opens the eyes of the blind and he gives light to the eyes of our hearts as well. And he comes to release the captives. Who are the captives? Well, it's not just the prisoners. In in Luke, captivity and release is connected to a number of different concepts. One is the forgiveness of sins. That That humanity is in bondage to a kind of sinfulness. We're stuck in a way of being human that we can't escape and it's not good for us or for the world. And Jesus has come to release us. It's also connected with the idea of jubilee, which is this societal uh, moment that we read about in the book of Leviticus where the debts are canceled and the, the things that once belonged to us that were lost get restored in this great canceling of the debts and releasing of indentured servants and on and on and on. It's this great moment where the bounty of God's provision spills out even to the most needy of the community. And it's connected also with our captivity in Luke um, to Satan, to the accuser, the, the strong man, right, who must be bound so that Jesus can come and plunder his house. And so the release of captives is connected to all these concepts. And so Jesus, as he's coming and he's talking about what it is that God is doing in him, he's, he is moving to the very edges to bring the justice of God's kingdom to those who are on the outside looking in, not just on the inside. And what's so fascinating in this moment, we didn't read all the way into Luke 4, but when Jesus begins to get into the nitty-gritty details about just how all of this is going to work out and just about all the people who are going to be included in this great bringing of God's justice to bear upon the earth, the religious people get really mad. The people who feel entitled and included already get very angry at the idea that those at the edges or beyond the edges would possibly also have a share in the promise of God. And they immediately move on Jesus to kill him. It's a fascinating moment because what it shows is that God brings his justice to the earth by way of grace. And if you don't need grace, you hate it right? If you're not someone who needs grace, who needs mercy, then what is mercy but unjust? What is grace but an unfair allocation of love and resources and favor to those who don't deserve it as much as I do? Jesus gives us a robust hope for justice in this world that's neither naive nor cynical because it's able to actually look on the reality that our world is filled with people who don't deserve the justice that we desire. Yet God in his grace comes to bring it anyway. And he unleashes us as participants with him in that extending of justice to the world by way of our receiving it as his grace. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to do this and to proclaim this. And it's the spirit of new creation that he also, at the end of his life, when he dies and rises and ascends, will then pour out upon the earth that it may live in us and compel us as well to be like him in the earth, extending God's justice by way of grace. 
not simply to those who deserve it, but to those whom God has given us to share it. And what's so fascinating for me as we look at Jesus' life and we look at this vision that Isaiah gives us of this world, this city of Jerusalem in which there's no more weeping, no more tears. What we see as Jesus comes to actually embody that hope in our present world, what do we see him doing? Weeping over the city, shedding tears, lamenting at the reality and the persistence of injustice, that the world is not as it ought to be, that we are not as we ought to be. And so Jesus, the bearer of God's justice, the bearer of the hope of the world where there are no more tears, he bears it as one who weeps. Neither neither naive nor cynical, about the reality of the world, he comes to embody the hope of justice and to bear the reality of God's promise of justice, and he comes as one who will suffer injustice. Which brings us to our third and final thing that Jesus shows us. I think he shows us what it looks like not simply to desire justice, but to do it. Not simply to desire, Jesus, to desire justice, but to do it. Jesus, in his own life, he takes up that life commended by the prophet Micah, right? The one who says, what is it that God desires of his people? You know the song, right? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Justice, mercy, humility, wedded together in one way of life that looks like the way of the cross that we see in Jesus. It looks like the way of love. It looks like the way of the spirit, the spirit of new creation who calls us to get swept up in the movement of God's justice, not simply the spirit of the age in which we live that calls us up into all the various shifting waves of whatever cause, whatever activism, whatever kind of spirit of the age stuff that we get caught up in. Some of those are wonderful. Some of those bear witness to partial things that are wonderful. But the movement of the spirit of new creation is deeper. The movement of the kingdom and God's vision for justice is more robust. And the way that he calls us to do it is just as important as the vision of justice itself. And it's the way of the cross. The way of refusing to exploit others for one's own gain, but rather to leverage all the privilege and all the power that we have for the gain of the whole community. We're all in this together. The Spirit draws us into this movement. And it's the movement, I mean, I think, as I mentioned before, as we see the, li- the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and, and the way he, in, some, in many ways, models for us what it looks like to be Jesus' apprentice in the way of seeking justice in our world, it, it blows my mind time and again to just look at how committed he was to doing justice and not just seeking it. He was absolutely committed to his own responsibility to act justly and not just his own right to be treated justly. And that's what made him so compelling. It wasn't just the end goal, but it was the means by which he pursued it, which was the means modeled for him in Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of love. Miroslav Volf is uh, a theologian at Yale who... um, uh, grew up in the conflict, um, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, uh, you know, different groups competing. He, was, he grew up in the context of a war-torn Croatia. 
um, and has written extensively on justice and forgiveness. And in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes about what it looks like to live in a world where there are all these competing visions of justice. And how dangerous we become when we get so proud of ourselves for having thought of or having discerned rightly what the right view of justice is, right? That our way has to be the way that gets spread across all the earth. And, he's, and he, he tracks through the history of people groups striving for justice in this justice versus justice competition. And he says, you know what? What Jesus shows us and what history also proves over the long haul is that the way we seek justice especially in a pluralistic world where there are many different visions of what justice is, the way we do it is the way of embrace. It is embracing the other. It is moving across difference, not for the primary purpose of agreement, but for the primary purpose of embrace. Extending grace. Not colonizing to make everybody think like you but embrace, love mercy, walk humbly, do justice. We've been doing this January term class, Vintage Saints and Sinners, where we've been learning about the stories of various people who've gone before us. And this past time, we, uh, we, we learned about the life of Mother Teresa. And she's kind of an intimidating figure because she's sort of an all-star saint, right? I mean, she gave her life in such obvious sacrificial ways and became more or less a celebrity doing it. Um, she was a successful saint, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and so when, she, and when people would say, how do, you know, how do you do this? I can't do what you do. Your life is so extreme as a servant, as a seeker of peace and justice and healing in the world. In my little life, I can't imagine doing what you do. How can I be fruitful in my own way of life? And Mother Teresa, whose, whose work, you know, transformed the face of the city of Calcutta, she said, find your own Calcutta. Not meaning transform the city you live in, but identify the sphere in which God has placed you where you have agency to be a bearer of God's justice and healing. And then do that there. So as you and I think about what does it mean to get caught up in this kingdom movement of justice? What does it mean to become doers of justice? I think we can let a little bit of Mother Teresa rub on, off on us as well as we think about, you know, what's your Calcutta? What's the space in which you have agency? What's the space in which you have a voice? Where your say actually shapes the way things are. It could be your home, be your family. It could be the influence you have through your work. Certainly, it's as a citizen and in the, in the capacity that you have, whether you're a citizen, a private citizen like me, or an elected official, it's going to look different for each and every one of us. But where do you have agency where your say actually shapes the way things are? And the number one place you and I have agency is over our own actions, our own thoughts, words, and deeds. And I think the call, what Jesus is calling us up into as we think about what it means to live out of a real hope for justice as seekers of justice is just this. Will you live by the spirit that has anointed me, that has anointed you? And will you direct the life, your thoughts, your words, your actions 
not just aimlessly into some grand mission of changing the world, but very concretely in my mission of changing the world in which I've given you the job of loving your neighbor. We get so busy caught up trying to change the world that we forget to love our neighbor. And we end up missing the whole mission, the whole vision of this movement of justice in the world because we try to do Jesus' job instead of our own. But the spirit of the Lord was upon him to bring good news to the poor and the blind and the captive. And he's brought that release and he's calling you and me into an embodiment of that same pursuit of justice as we are, where we are, in our own space. What's your Calcutta? And what would it look like for you to be one who allows God's vision of justice to shape your own? Who allows God's promise of justice to give you hope? And who allows God's way of pursuing justice to shape you into being someone who loves your neighbor? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. This is the way of life given to us in our Savior Jesus. Let us walk in it by his grace and with his spirit. Amen. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have in fact loved us in your son Jesus. We give you thanks that you are a God who is just and who loves justice. We thank you that you are not beholden to the ebbs and flows of our human passions and thoughts, ideas. The movement of your kingdom is not deterred by our consistency in participating in it with you. But you are faithful to move your promise forward as you have been since the beginning. And in your son, you have drawn us up into this mission. You've included us by your grace and you've called us to be your participants in the power and presence of your spirit. So would you change us? Would you liberate us from the, the, the shackles that bind us and keep us from being passive or detached or angry in the wrong ways? And would you unleash us in your likeness to be bearers of your justice and peace in the earth? We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.